Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland. I will be, will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Brandon Borrell about the new book, The First Shots, The Epic Rivalries and Heroic Science Behind the Race to the Coronavirus Vaccine. Heroic Science, Chaotic Politics, Billionaire Entrepreneurs. Award-winning journalist Brandon Borrell brings the defining story of our times alive through compulsively readable, first-time reporting on the players leading to the fight against the vicious virus. The first shots lays bare in a way we have not seen the full stunning story behind the medical science one shot of our lifetimes. Well, Brendan, welcome to the show. Hi, Galena. Thanks for having me. So I would like to start by asking, how has this pandemic affected you and your work? I think it's, I, I've gone through many of the same struggles that, that everyone else has. I mean, I mean, starting in January 2020, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a freelance journalist and I had uh, many assignments canceled and uh, wasn't sure how I was going to make a living because <laughs> I couldn't travel. Uh, so I think I made the decision to work on a book about COVID, which gave me something to keep busy with during the lockdown. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to sort of look at the pandemic. And of course, we will get into that. But about yourself, how did you find getting to this online world? I mean, it took took some adjusting. I I mean, I, you know, not being able to travel and and see my family. And, uh, you know, I think we all had this experience where at first, Using Zoom was very exciting, FaceTiming with your family members. Um, and then it started to get old. And, uh, you know, this year, yeah, it's the last thing that I want to do. <laughs> so you already mentioned that you're a journalist. Can you tell us more about yourself? Well, I'm, you know, I'm, uh, 
studied biology in, in college uh, and in graduate school. I actually ended up doing research on tropical bees, uh, and I thought I was going to become a professor. Uh, but I had always loved writing. I'd written stories when I was younger. I'd you know made movies. I I just I loved that sort of creative side of things. And so when I was finishing up graduate school. I started to write for for some magazines and, and was uh, be, became a freelance journalist about 15 years ago. These days, I write for newspapers like the New York Times. I write for magazines, um, and uh, and and yeah, and so that's that's basically my life. <laughs> and you never thought about going back to well, hard sciences? No, I you know I think once it was just kind of one of these moments where I realized, wow, this is you know, this is exactly what I should have always been doing. I learned so much, you know, in my sci scientific studies and I, I, you know, gathering data and learning how to write, you know, technical reports up. But, uh, you know, and I put that to use as a journalist, but I, I love telling other people's stories and I love kind of following that and, and kind of understanding how the world works in that way. And how easy or difficult was it for you to switch uh, from being a scientist to being science communicator and journalist? It, you know, it was a, a steep learning curve. I mean, uh, unlike sort of in the science world, there was a clear path that was laid out for me. You know, you finish your PhD, get a postdoctoral position, you become a professor. And I thought that's what was going to happen. And I knew how it worked. With journalism, there's no map. You know, people come to it from every different direction, um, you know, and, and the freelance world is reaching out into a, a black box, trying to find, you know, the email for an editor who you want to write for, figure out how much you're going to get paid for it, how much time it's going to take, understanding, you know, watching what magazines uh, go out of business and others appear and you say, oh, there's a little bit of money there. These people will pay me to write an article. Um, so, so it is, uh, it's a little bit of a hustle. <laughs> and what would you say to our younger listeners and perhaps early career researchers or students who might be considering, um, uh, a career in science journalism? I would say, you know, it, if, if it's something that you're dedicated to, uh, then you should go for it. I mean, it's not an easy path and, uh, but you know, I would say the first thing to do is, is try to write on your own. Um, try to, uh, you know, read a whole lot, read the places that you, you know, uh, that are, that are doing the top notch journalism that you want to try to emulate. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and, and I think you just got to keep trying because you're going to get rejected a lot. I got rejected a lot in the early days. And even today, most of my ideas <laughs> do not, uh, end up becoming articles. So your latest book is The First Shots, The Epic Rivalries and Heroic Science Behind the Race to the Coronavirus Vaccine. So can you tell us how did you come to writing it? Well, I, I began to write about COVID kind of in, you know, in those early months in March and April. I started writing a few magazine articles um, and I wrote a piece, uh, you know, this was just, it's hard to remember, but the vaccine seemed like it was going to be this distant thing. It was going to be years to develop. And, uh, and few people were talking about it, except uh, I, it, it was starting to become clear that there was no other way out of this pandemic until we had a vaccine. Um, so I started sort of talking to people 
trying to understand how that was going to work. I didn't, you know, I told you I studied science, but I didn't know anything about immunology or vaccinology. And so there was just this steep learning curve for me. I looking up what antibodies were and, um, and gradually I, I started to see that, Hey, this is, this really is the epic science story of, you know, the decade. And I want to, to sort of dive into it and write about it. So I, I talked to my agent and we, Got a book proposal together very very quickly, and uh, and luckily uh, we we found a publisher that wanted to uh, to support it. So let's look into the story that you cover in your book and some of the science as well. I was really curious. What genre is your book? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, what do you think when you were reading it? <laughs> um, it's more of a detective story kind of figuring things out, but also it's like a play because it has all of these people, all of these actors. It's a really interesting way to approach it, I found. Yeah, I mean, I think go, beginning this project, I, I, I got to say, I mean, I, I, I've written about the pharmaceutical world before. I thought it was going to be so boring. How do you dramatize people in lab coats working in a sterile laboratory every single scene would be the same there's the pipette there's the lab bench and so on and i knew that i didn't want to do that i wanted to tell kind of the story of how decisions were made along the way i wanted to tell it in sort of pure chronological order and i think one thing about my background you may know is i'm a you know i write for outside magazine which is this outdoors magazine here i, I love sort of adventure writers like John Krakauer. And so I think I was I was motivated a little bit to make this an adventure story. You know, there's the, the detective element, as you point out, um, the thriller element, but there's also kind of like this enormous mission that these people are going on. And I liked, I played with that here in the US, the military was involved in the vaccine program, the Operation Warp Speed. And I wanted to sort of paint this picture of this, this adventure. People are getting things together. They have to do all these, you know, tasks. And I felt like by telling the story step by step like that, I could slip in the science here and there, but it would just keep moving forward, forward, forward until the, the vaccine rolls out. Yeah. And I found it really effective. It really puts you right inside the whole story, but also make you think that you are responsible for having achieved this incredible innovation like a vaccine because we're all sort of contributed to it in some way <laughs> uh, well yeah that's that's an interesting way to put it uh you know i think the the clinical trial volunteers we have them to thank alongside the scientists and of course all of us who roll up our sleeves um are contributing to you know reducing the spread of the virus um, but, uh, but in terms of that, that literary experience of the, you know, I wanted to put people in the room. <laughs> yeah. So as pandemic has affected the whole world, who are the main characters in your story and how did you pick them out? Well, you know, I, I think what I tried to capture with the vaccines is there's, you know, you can look at it from sort of different angles. You can look at it from the science angle, the business angle, and the politics angle. And all of these collide in the book. So uh, so there are a lot of characters, but, you know, there are a few that, that stand out. Uh, one, of the, one of the folks that, that I, just an impressive guy is Barney Graham, uh, who is at the National Institutes of Health. And he was 
played a pivotal role in kind of designing the strategy that we would use to develop this coronavirus spike vaccine. It's basically creating a, a stiffening the spike of the of the of the of the coronavirus spike, which basically allows the body to develop higher uh, quality antibodies. And Barney is is just this amazing, sweet guy. He was raised in Kansas um, and just a passionate, cerebral scientist. So I, I tell his story as kind of the pure science story. Then I have folks like Dr. Bob Cadlick, who's a military doctor. He was inside the Trump administration, and he was one of the creators of our accelerated vaccine program, Operation Warp Speed. And a lot of the story is about kind of his battles, you know, and, you know, struggles within this this very chaotic uh, sort of anti-science White House. Um, and then kind of the third element are these companies. And and probably, you know, one, one of the key characters here is Stefan Bonsell, the Frenchman who was the CEO of Moderna. And Bonsell actually had a very close relationship with, uh, with Barney Graham at the NIH. And he was, of course, funded by Operation Warp Speed. So all of these people interact in this, this universe. <laughs> so if we go right to the start of the pandemic, how did it all begin? The, the how it began is, of course, a, a matter of, of some controversy. Of course, mm-hmm. there, are, there are some people who believe that, you know, there was a, a laboratory leak of sorts from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. That's become very popular. Um, the sort of more standard theory is, is, of course, that there was a spillover event that uh, somehow bats, uh, which are the carriers of the novel coronavirus, um, spread it to, uh, you know, another animal and somehow that spread to, to people. We don't know exactly how that happened. And it's, yeah, I mean, that's been, been a source of huge controversy, but what we know is in late 2019, um, cases began exploding. They exploded in the Wuhan seafood market and, uh, and then eventually it, it spread to the world. And what was the reaction, especially in U.S., to these initial revelations? Well, I, you know, I think everybody all over the world was there. You, you have this thought, you're looking at this thing on the news and you're thinking, well, that, that's too bad for them, right? Um, that's, it's, no, there's no way it's going to spread here. They're going to, you know, because that, that is what mostly happens with these outbreaks. We hear about outbreaks of Ebola in African countries, other previous, the previous SARS outbreak in, in China in, in 20, 2002, 2003, it did not spread very far. These diseases are kind of fast and furious, and then they run out of people to, to infect um, or, you know, basically burn themselves out. Uh, and so, so yeah, I think there was a sense of disbelief, like we're going to be okay. And then, uh, you know, around, uh, late February, it became clear that actually the coronavirus is here in the U S it's incredibly infectious and, uh, it's going to be a pandemic. So before the efforts uh, of vaccine development were, I suppose, put, uh, put into, into the gear, um, there were some ways to sort of prevent pandemic spreading. So how was it approached in U.S.? We, I mean, as you may be aware, we had a very sort of 
chaotic White House. You know, our government was not very well organized. There were a lot of different opinions uh, within the Trump White House about how seriously to take the coronavirus. There were fears about shutting down the country. But I mean, we the only tool we had in the initial days were what they call NPIs, non-pharmaceutical interventions is the jargon. And that's, you know, masks, that's lockdowns, um, you know, social distancing, uh, you know, different, you know, and then, you know, you may recall that people were very concerned about the virus spreading from, from touch and from infected packages. And so people were using, you know, uh, alcohol wipes and everything on everything. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we were, we were doing these with, you know, more or less efficacy, uh, in the early days it did kind of, you know, we had a shutdown in this country in, in April, uh, not as strict as some places. Um, but then by the summer, uh, there, there was a bit of a, of a revolt in the, in the U S where many, where the Trump administration didn't want a national lockdown of any kind and various states sort of went their own way. Some like where I live in California were stricter. We didn't allow people to sort of be indoors without masks. Other states sort of went the other way and said, we're just going to let this thing rip <laughs> through our population. So what was the Operation Moonshot? How did it start? It, it began, and this is a, a scene I describe in my book, a pizza party uh, in the Department of Health and Human Services. This is like our big health agency here. It's across from the Capitol in Washington, D.C., and up there on the sixth floor is where I have this guy, Bob Cadlick, this military doctor, battled figure. And he uh, invites some of his brain trust and calls up a guy at the, the Food and Drug Administration, our drug regulator, um, to sort of talk about how can we speed up vaccine development. And they come up with this idea, which gets named Operation Warp Speed, which is number one. We're going to put billions of dollars into manufacturing vaccines before they've even proven effective. And number two, we're going to sort of use a, a program to kind of pick the best, you know, the most promising vaccine makers. Because at that time, this is April 2020, there were, you know, hundreds of possible vaccine candidates. And the, the program, you know, it, it changes shape over time, but they ended up selecting seven major vaccine companies, Pfizer, Moderna, Novavax, Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca, um, Sanofi, and funding them uh, and helping them run their, their clinical trials. And this was, I mean, you could, there was, people thought this was absurd that you could have a vaccine by the end of the year. And of course, they proved uh, that it was possible. So how did this vaccine development proceed further? Well, the, you know, many companies were kind of moving at their own pace. And, and this, this was one of the things that was important about Warp Speed is uh, back, you know, many companies have never really seen vaccines as like a real profit maker. Um, so like Pfizer, for instance, it, it wasn't lining up to make a coronavirus vaccine in the early days. Its partner in Germany, BioNTech, you know, is a smaller company and it was kind of looking at the coronavirus. But Pfizer's like, no, we're, we're not interested um, and it was kind of the same story with other major pharmaceutical companies. And so part of Warp Speed was, let's jumpstart these, these programs. Let's provide this infusion of cash. Um, and how it proceeded is kind of, 
the the traditional way you develop a vaccine is you have this design and and the the, the vaccine itself you actually can make pretty quickly as as I talk about in the book um, within days of the coronavirus gene sequence becoming available scientists had sort of a a vaccine that they wanted to use but it was the, what takes a long time is the testing process first you go into animals you go mice monkeys and then people. Um, and sort of the first studies with people, it's sort of small scale, sort of checking for any major safety signals, figuring out what's the right dose that's going to be effective, but is not going to be sort of dangerous or too reactive. And then finally, uh, you have the large scale efficacy trials. And this is when tens of thousands of people received this experimental vaccine and were, you know, would half of them receive the vaccine, half of them receive a placebo, then they go out into the world where COVID is potentially spreading. And you see, are you more likely to uh, be infected uh, if you have not been vaccinated than if you have been? Um, and that's the final answer about to, to figure out whether the vaccine is effective. So this point is really crucial uh, that you mentioned that this testing part is uh, something that takes the longest uh, compared to the development of the vaccine sequence as such. So how did investigators manage to shorten this testing clinical trial time? Yeah, they they did a lot of things in parallel. So normally, you know, vaccine development, you want to be very conservative because Every experiment is expensive, especially when they involve people and doctors and all of that. So you take, you go, you know, one step at a time, look at the data, decide, all right, we're going to move forward. What we saw with these coronavirus vaccines is people were doing the monkey tests, the mouse tests, and the human tests all at the same time quite often. You know, they, they would sort of wait for the critical piece of data, like with mice, you, that before the, the vaccine went into humans the scientists wanted to ensure it was pr producing the correct antibodies. So once they knew it was correct antibodies, that means they had a pretty good idea the vaccine would produce the correct antibodies in people and possibly be effective. It was worth going forward and, and giving it to people. But there were still lots of other studies you want to do in the mice, sort of uh, fine scale uh, studies and sort of getting the final proof that it would actually stop the virus in the mice. Because one thing you can do in mice that you can't do in people is you can challenge them with live virus uh, and see if the vaccinated mice can fight off the virus. And people, sort of for ethical reasons, uh, we don't infect them with live virus. Um, we haven't historically. We just sort of see how, how likely they are to be protected if they naturally get it. Um, But the other sort of step of this that was sped up was, you know, normally the, the, you, you do the study, you get the data, it gets submitted to the FDA, and it takes a really long time. But one, the program here in the U.S. involved just a con constant communication between the government, the companies about the data, looking at, you know, not doing the full deep analysis before approving the next step in the process, but You know, they, they talked about getting rid of the dead space to make that whole process fast, to get into those final stage clinical trials as quickly as possible. And then we approved the vaccine under an emergency authorization, um, which was a little bit, you know, it's quicker than normal because we didn't normally a vaccine. Uh, 
Uh, the FDA likes to see six months worth of safety data showing, you know, you followed the, the participants of your trial for six months. In this case, they only wanted two months of data. Um, so, there, yeah, there were a number of things that moved the process faster. And then there was just a whole lot of good luck. Um, the fact that this mRNA technology, which had never been used before, actually worked. Wow. So essentially, it's not uh, the case of cutting corners. It's more about making all of the processes run in parallel and making them more efficient. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, it. You know, the the. I think people are very careful to say, "Oh, we didn't cut any corners because mm. it sort of scares people or makes them worried that it, things weren't done right." I mean, but we were in a pandemic. There were the, there was a very intense emergency, and so I think the. I mean, the main way that that there were sort of going in parallel, you know, speeds things up. But I mean, the, also the fact that the moment the vaccines were approved there was already vaccine being manufactured was that's incredible. I mean, normally a company would wait till they get approval, then they would start ramping up manufacturing um, because that, I mean, that's a huge process in itself and it is a slow one. I mean, it, they, they start, you know, it took them six months to, to get their first vaccines out and then ramping up to vaccinate the world is, is, is a continuing challenge. So, of course, the response and management of pandemic has many different players, some, uh, something like governments and society and also high politicians. So I wonder if you could give us a bit of a glimpse into what do they all have to kind of contribute to the response? Yeah, I mean, in, in the, the U.S., the you know, we had several agencies. We have and I talk about them in the book, the National Institutes of Health is kind of our biomedical research institute. It's a very impressive organization. I went there. It's like a large college campus. Um, there's a big hospital there. And then there's just labs studying every single thing you can imagine. And this is the institute where uh, Anthony Fauci works. Uh, he runs the National Institutes for Allergy and Infectious Diseases and oversees this vaccine research center, which, which produced the vaccine. Uh, then we had the Centers for Disease Control, uh, which is they're, they're responsible for kind of epidemiology and tracking diseases, um, tracking obesity rates. Uh, and they, you know, they during the pandemic were very have been very heavily criticized for because they, they also sort of offer sort of, you know, they're supposed to provide communicate information to the general public about how to, you know, you know, how to handle themselves, you know, do you wear a mask inside? Is it okay to meet other people uh, and take off your mask and so on? And the information has, it, the communication has been a big challenge. Um, and then the third sort of wing of this is uh, sort of the, the, um, the FDA. These are the regulators. Um, these are the people that decide, hey, is this, is this vaccine ready to go? And it's kind of interesting because each of these sort of components of our government here, they were, they're kind of walled off from each other. And I think in the book, I talk about how they have different cultures. There were, tug, you know, tug of war um, going on. And I think it was important that these things were that these people had different opinions because that that sort of allowed a, a kind of debate to play out and allowed sort of the best ideas to come to the fore.
And what about scientists? So during this pandemic, we saw that many more started to speak up and speak to the population. So how did you observe their roles evolve? I mean, this this pandemic has brought an incredible amount of science. I mean, the number I, the number of papers that have come out about uh, coronavirus immunology and so on. I mean, it's just a, a flood of scientific research. This is one of the most significant, you might call it, scientific experiments in uh, the history of of infectious diseases. Uh, so. I mean, it's it's been amazing to watch the data come in and get analyzed so quickly. There's been so much data sharing that's been going on, um, and so I think it's been it's been very interesting. And I and the scientific community has played a really important role in sort of helping us understand the you know what is happening with the vaccines, help us understand what part of the government response is appropriate or not. They've sort of as outside scientists at universities are able to kind of challenge the government on some of their policies. Um, so it's, yeah, it's been a very interesting time for science. And so many scientists have come out on social media um, and also sort of helped people understand uh, the science of the vaccines and why they're, they're safe. And now coming to a bit more controversial player, the media, how does this fit in? Yeah, I mean, uh, the the media has, uh, it's been a learning curve, for sure, you know, some uh, sources of information, some, you know, it, when when COVID broke out, it suddenly you had all of your political reporters uh, having to cover the coronavirus. And, and many, you know, it's kind of interesting to look back at some of the, the early stories about how these things were reported, um, and who was reporting them. I, I remember, there was one uh very good. It's a. It was a very good story in the New York Times about uh, sort of vaccine. You know the global vaccine race. You know, but it had people like Carl Zimmer, who's a very well-known science writer, with a you know a national security writer, sort of both working on the same story. Um, but yeah, I think I think to your point about what what you mean by controversial, you mean that sort of some of the stories have been overblown. There, you know, you feel like there was a lot of fear that. Um, you know, might have led to some bad decisions here and there and, and let, you know, um, and I think that was hard. It was, it was this unfolding, um, un- there was just a huge amount of uncertainty. We never knew is the virus going to explode this week or next? Is it going to be more severe or less severe? And I think, you know, the media's responsibility is to report what, you know, what they're learning from the scientists, um, but yeah, to, to put it in context and make sure that that uncertainty around it is is very clear, um, you know. Uh, but I I think that while yeah there were some bad stories out there, it's it's the caliber of journalism was was I can say is pretty pretty impressive here in the U.S. Did you have a feeling that in this situation, some of these stories they were called out a little faster as well? that if some of them weren't really giving correct information or even misinformation, other people would call them out. We, we saw that, that, I mean, these stories would end up on Twitter so quickly and there was a lot of picking apart of every story, every phrase that was used. Um, 
yes, uh, I think that was that was kind of the the peer review process that went on, and and many scientists, you know, that was one of the, the benefit of having so many scientists on social media to sort of put things in perspective. So, what about society? So, thinking about especially about response to the vaccines, I it's been it's been a complicated story. The we 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 went in the early days from having you know not enough supply of the vaccines just a few doses people desperate to get them uh to suddenly having a, a situation where the demand has started to flag and we're you know the levels of vaccination have been disappointing particularly here in the US you know i know some european countries have very impressive vaccination rates um and uh and the, the the degree to which there's been kind of this strengthening of the anti-vaccination movement um has been has been pretty scary i mean these i if ever there was a, a vaccine that's been demonstrated to be safe and effective it's this one but but a lot of people uh you know don't see their individual risk as too high we know covid primarily affects the elderly and the vulnerable so younger people are like why should i get the vaccine um and uh and the problem with that of course is is that it's it's allowing the continuing spread and evolution of the virus. So where do you see us going from here? Well, yeah, what's you know, the the worst thing you could possibly do is try to make a prediction about the coronavirus. Uh, you know, you're guaranteed to be wrong. I mean, I want to say, you know, after we've after this omicron peak that we're not going to have a major peak, but the virologists tell me that's not true that it could we could have another nasty variant appear come out of some unvaccinated country <laughs> um and uh and so so yeah i think i think that the story's not over but i th- we are probably going to see uh developing herd immunity a hybrid of vaccination and people who had been previously infected generally lowering the severity of the virus um but like seasonal flu we might have worse years and better years um and uh and i think the sort of the, the story for the future in the, in the vaccine department is is i know that scientists have been talking about creating kind of universal coronavirus vaccines that will cover a greater range of variants um and um uh, and i think the other, the other larger story is that you know the next outbreak may not be a coronavirus it could be something else um so it will be critical for sort of basic science researchers to be working on some of these other dangerous viral diseases so what would be the implication of us preparing for these kind of situations in the future to really have um a good response to the upcoming pandemics Yeah, well, I talk about this idea that that Barney Graham had. He's the, this researcher at the NIH, um, which is that there's about 25 families of viruses that are known to be dangerous to humans, um, and we have vaccines for about 13 of these representative members in, in each of these virus families. Um, and he thinks that we need to be going, you know, hard on the other 12 virus families to create what he calls prototype vaccines because if you have sort of a vaccine for one coronavirus you're able to sort of modify it and use it for a different coronavirus 
you know, you have to sort of go through testing and there might be some other changes, but you're in a pretty good place. That's part of the reason we were able to move so fast with this one. That's why two days after getting the sequence, uh, Barney Graham was able to have a vaccine design um, because years before he'd been working on coronaviruses. Um, but what if it was a, a virus that we have not studied before? And that, that would be a, that would take a lot longer. And now thinking about the human part of it, so pandemic has really showed that we can be really resilient as society, but it's not going anywhere, at least in the very close foreseeable future. So what, in your opinion, is the impact or implications of having good mental health, for example, or support for you to be able to kind of weather it? Yeah, I think this... This has been very trying for for many people, um, and uh, you know, are, are, I, I mean, people who live alone, people who don't have strong social connections, I think, were particularly hurt uh, by by the pandemic. Um, but I, I think it, it it affected everybody. Um, you know, the the mental health has certainly been one of these things that has taken a, a bit of a hit. Um, because, you know, you focus on the infectious disease, the immediate threat, um, the thing that's scary, but, um, you know, people probably aren't doing therapy as much as they should be um, in going out and seeking seeking the support they need. I think the beauty of one of, one of the developments of the pandemic has, of course, been Zoom. Um, and I know you can, you can seek some, some mental health services via Zoom now. And, and I, that, that has been... Uh, sort of an interesting development. Um, this has sped up our uh, sort of modern <laughs> communication technologies and, and open people up to new ideas in, in terms of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, there's, there's no escaping the fact that people have had, you know, economic troubles and, uh, you know, and challenges because of the pandemic. So what discoveries along your journey to writing your book, The First Shots, surprised you the most? I think I was I was most surprised by just, I mean, the, the incredible dedication of all of the civil servants, the people who worked in government who pushed this program forward and allowed, um, you know, and, and were working and, and 24 hours a day, sleepless nights, trying to solve this problem. You know, I had this idea going into it that, yeah, you know, the government's going to be boring. I mean, I'm not a political writer, but man, I was, I was fascinated by the inner workings of the government and the way regulation worked. <laughs> and it sounds like super boring, but, uh, but I think as, as you can see from the book, it's, it's pretty riveting stuff. And do you have ways of kind of switching it all off? Because you, you're living through the pandemic, but also you're writing about pandemic. Don't you sometimes wish just to wander away somewhere? <laughs> um, well, yeah. I mean, when I finished my book, I thought, oh, my God, I don't think I want to write about the coronavirus anymore. Um, but, you know, I don't really have a choice. It's it's still in the news and it's still something that, uh, that I mean, we're all paying attention to. Um, but I do, you know, I do have ideas for what my, you know, my next projects are going to be, and then they might not be related to this. So, so I'm looking forward to that. Excellent. Well, it has been truly insightful discussion. And can you tell us what is next for you? 
Next for me, um, you know, I think I, I, I'm still kind of looking for it, but I, I do write a lot about the, the natural world. Um, and I have a article that I'm, I'm working on related to uh, some wild birds here in Los Angeles. And what would be the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book? Well, my website's just brendanburrell.com, and I got a website for the book too, which is thefirstshots.com. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, Great talking to you.